This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We're on the line with Phil Boulder. How are you, Phil? Very well, Bob. Yourself? I'm doing okay. Phil Bowler is a very interesting man. We'll find out maybe more about about him in a in a little while. Uh, but one of the reasons I wanted to have him on the Historian's Podcast at the suggestion of our mutual friend Tom Peichel, who maintains joint residency in France and the United States, but that's another story. But at the suggestion of Tom Peichel, he said that Phil Bowler knows a great deal about what was his family's business in Amsterdam, New York, a brewery. As I understand it, Phil, this brewery was started many years ago by a man named Harry Bowler. Can you tell us something about it? Well, Harry Fitch Bowler uh, started the brewery, but his family, or the Bowler family, came to the United States in 18... Uh, 80, uh, 1859, excuse me. The brewery was started in Amsterdam in 1889. Mm-hmm. The bowlers have a long history uh, of brewmasters in various breweries. I have been to Ipswich, England, from which Her- uh, Henry Bowler, the, my great-great-grandfather, uh, was the brewmaster of the Tally Cobalt Brewery in Ipswich, England. Mm-hmm. And he came to uh, Troy, New York, to work in a brewery there, which I never found out which one, but I suspect that it must have been one of the English breweries because of his experience with all of the English uh, beers and ales. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had uh, three sons that he brought with him, and I think two daughters. And the other two great-granduncles of mine, John and Alexander Bowler, started in, I believe, around 1888, a Bowler Brothers Limited Brewery in Worcester, Mass. And by the turn of the 20th century, for a few years, it was the largest brewery in New England. Um, My great-grandfather, Harry Fitch Bowler, opened the brewery in Amsterdam, and I have gone through the probate records and uh, believe that there were about 12 buildings on that site on uh, West Main Street in Amsterdam. The main brewery building is still standing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I never got any of the formula or any of the money, but one of the things that I really wish that I had got was mm-hmm. the formula from the paint that he put up there on the building, which well over 100 years, you can still see Bowler's Brewery on the building. That's yeah, one uh, of those what they call ghost signs, right? When you sort of like a ghost sign, but he yeah. can still see it after a, well over 100 years. Now, you said I he started think... the brewery in 1889. Maybe I'm on the wrong track, but... I, I thought that he first built a brewery building out of wood, but then they had burned down, or they burned down before 1899. It may have, but I was not aware of that. Okay. Uh, uh, one of the big secrets to his success in brewing was that he got a 99-year lease on the spring <clears throat> that today is uh, in a garage on Carmichael Street, one block behind Main Street.
and that spring is still there with, I suspect, ultra-pure water. Yes. Well, in fact, I'm searching here. Somewhere in my <laughs> looking up things, I came across the actual name of the spring. Maybe I'll find it as we, as we go on. Also, I have seen a uh, listing on a beer website of some of the different names they used for uh, the product of Bowler's Brewery and its successor. Unfortunately, a lot of the, all the dates come from the 1930s, which is way far ahead in our uh, story, and I believe long after the demise of the original Harry Bowler. But to get to the point, some of the names were Amsterdam Ale, Amsterdam Half and Half, Amsterdam India Pale Ale. You kind of get the picture there, all about Amsterdam. Yeah, they, I have several of the bottles, and I have two oval beer serving trays with uh, Bowler's Brewery on it. Uh, I have talked to some very elderly people. I'm 77, so these people were older than me. And they have told me that when they were kids, their parents sent them to the brewery with a pail to get beer in a pail. So the, the bottling and capping came sometime after uh, the brewery. A lot of it was put into uh, wooden kegs, and the kegs were, you know, taken to bars where a tap was put into them. Mm -hmm. And your great-grandfather, Harry Bowler, uh, operated the brewery until his death, which I believe was in 1917? That is correct. And then my grandfather and his brother took over the brewery, but with all of the Bowler fortune and brewery fortune, Prohibition came along, and that was just about the end of the the Bowler era in the breweries. Yeah, because they kept going, supposedly putting out other products, but I've noted in a couple of uh, history publications I frequently uh, consult, like um, uh, Mr. Cinquanti's uh, birthday blog, Michael Cinquanti, has uh, your great-grandfather's birthday noted, which was January 23rd, I might point out, uh, saying that there were a number of raids on the bowler business uh, during uh, the 1920s, during Prohibition. I, I was not aware of that. So if you've got something like that, why ship it along in an email. <laughs> uh, but I know they, uh, at one point in time, I think both of the breweries went into soda production. I'm not quite sure that they were as skilled in that area or there was as much profit in that area. No, I, probably I know not. the Worcester Brewery ran under several names up until the 1960s. Really? Because uh, yeah. the, the story kind of I've got is that um, eventually, and I believe you've sent this to me in some of your uh, material, another person or another company bought out your relatives in uh, so when they reopened after Prohibition ended, as I understand it, in 1933, they were operated by a, a, another another crew. Is, is that so or or not, according to your well, knowledge? Well, it was called, the, the Worcester Brewery was called, uh, uh, called Worcester Brewery, and it was also called Brockerts, B-R-O-C-K-E-R-T-S. And one of the the key products of the Worcester Brewery was called Tad Caster Ale, T-A-D-C-A-S-T-E-R, from the small town of Tadcaster in England. 
And I suspect, although I have not been to Tadcaster in England, that bowlers at one time were brewmasters there. It, it could be. Um, but um, this other company, as I understand it, that took over the Bowler Brewery uh, went into um, f had financial difficulties, and I think they went into bankruptcy or something like that in 1940. It, it's very possible, you know, because the 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 key to breweries is is you know water the the grains that go into it and the brewmasters, and that's probably a, a covert art learned over at least in in my family, and I don't know anything at all about it. <laughs> But it went on for five or six generations prior to uh, the bowlers coming to the United States. I found the name of the, the gentleman that it, I believe uh, succeeded the bowlers in operating the brewery in Amsterdam. George Largay, L-A-R-G-A-Y. Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I know of him by name, but I don't know him or never have met him or heard about him or further researched him because he was, you know, out of my family genealogy spirit. Mm. Now, back, you know, you know, going way back you know, to the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century when uh, Harry uh, Bowler is producing beer at Bowler's Brewery, well, a couple of points. It was a big operation. I know that at the Montgomery County um, Archives, I believe it is, uh, there, and I've seen it in a couple of uh, picture history books of Amsterdam, there's this picture of the bowler staff, uh, all men, all gathered at a at a picnic at the um, oh gosh I'm blanking on the name of the park. It's a, a park that was on the Phillips Park uh, out Pattersonville way, where a lot of people had uh, parties and such in the summertime. But and I guess I was just impressed by the the size of the crew, and to some extent they looked like you know pretty rough hombres there, the people that that made the beer. He also owned a hotel uh, up uh, up across from where your old radio station WCSS used to be, down in uh, where the the uh, the baseball park is on a little screen there, uh, sort of between there and Hegeman. Mm -hmm. He had a hotel up in there. Yeah. And the other thing is, and you've mentioned this really as we continue to chat about it uh, back in the late 19th early 20th century and maybe even like around mid-century there were an awful lot of individual breweries you know it wasn't like as it is today with uh, Budweiser and um, is it Miller uh, you know the, the main producers of uh, a beer I mean there's a certain revival now in um Oh, you know, craft beer, as they call it. But back then, you traveled 30 miles, you could have a different kind of beer. Well, I, I think, uh, like uh, everything in that time, most of the businesses were family-owned and generally small, which enabled this country to grow because all of the profits were kept locally and uh, the business uh, and products were brought locally. So uh, I think that was a, a big factor into the success of the small breweries a couple of guys did a um, book on breweries of the hudson valley and i did bring up uh, bowlers to them and bowlers are not in the book it just didn't make the geographic cut but maybe somebody will do a, a brewing history and include uh, 
include bowlers? Well, the, my uh, Henry Bowler uh, at one time had a brewery in Albany, New York, and he had another one in Glens Falls, New York. And I went to the Albany Histor- History Museum, not not the main one, but uh, the museum in the city, and walked down the stairs and looked, and there is uh, some advertising uh, ephemera from the Albany Brewery, which I did not know about until I saw that uh, that sign. And as you say, it is remarkable, to echo your words, that sign, that that bowler sign, you know, is still available. I believe when your great-grandfather built the brewery, the road was called the Mohawk Turnpike, and it was a dirt road. But now it's Route 5 or, or West Main Street, and uh, you can still, you know, see that uh, sign from that long-ago brewery. I, I also think that there was... Uh, <clears throat> At one time, a train track directly in front of the brewery, like a spur off of the New York Central Line, where products must have came in or beer could have been shipped out. But by the time you came along, I mean, you never have even tasted Bowler beer, or, or have no, you? No, it was, it was long gone by ooh, 20 years by the time I was born. Well, I said when we started, and uh, we're talking with Philip Malcolm Bowler, I, I believe is your full name. Is that right, Philip Malcolm? That, that's correct. Yeah, when I was in Amsterdam, I was everybody called me by my middle name, and my two sisters still call me by my middle name, which was uh, an uncle of mine who also lived in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And His you lived in Amsterdam, you write, from 1938 to 19. 19- 57, correct? And, and I lived in Amsterdam from 38 to 48, then in Broad Alban, uh, where my sister still is, the youngest sister still is, and, uh, and then uh, in 56, I came to Amsterdam to go to Wilbur Lynch High School. Oh, I see. And then graduated high school and... You've well, had I, a very interesting life. I never graduated from Wilbur Lynch. You know, my father was sick. We had no money in the family, so I ended up going to Connecticut, uh, got a job in uh, Sikorsky Aircraft Division. Uh, I finished up school with a GED there and then started going to uh, the University of Bridgeport. And believe it or not, my first college class was in the home of Phineas Taylor Barnum. He had a big <laughs> house in the winter quarters of the Barnum and Bailey Circus at one time was in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Wasn't he mayor of Bridgeport at one time? He he could have been. He was uh, pretty popular and a lot of the original people in the circus, including Tom Thumb and Lavinia Warren, came from Bridgeport. And I believe, ultimately, your life's path took you to Burlington, Vermont? I've been in Burlington, Vermont since 1961. And since you're retiring from uh, different jobs, you can go into what they were. I believe at some point you own some apartment or housing in uh, in Burlington. You have been on a journey. I mean, you're in fact, we're talking to you now in I think it's Muskogee, Oklahoma. I mean, you're kind of constantly traveling the country, visiting natural and historic sites. 
Yeah, that's correct. I have been to every county, 3,143 in the United States, to every continent, including five days in Antarctica. I've been three and a half times around the world by various ships. Uh, I've been to 76 different countries, uh, five times through Suez, once through the Panama Canal. And uh, you get a whole different perspective on life if you do that kind of travel. Hmm. How has your perspective changed because of this travel? I, I, first of all, after I got to Burlington, by that time I had, uh, I had some college education, but I started going nights and weekends and summers to the University of Vermont, and I got a bachelor's and a master's degree in business administration with a major in finance. And I have taken some extremely long trips, including an 84-day voyage and a 72-day voyage on container ships. And it certainly gave me a vastly different picture of the world economy and I wrote a fairly lengthy paper on it in 2010 and sent it to my representatives and senators and whatever, and nothing ever happened. And I said way back in 2010 that this economy will never, ever change in my lifetime unless there is a major upheaval or political or military upheaval in China. So if you said your representatives, one of them, I presume, was Bernie Sanders, the former, one of them is Bernie uh, the, well, the current the U.S. senator. Wants to get back to me. I'm sorry, you said he never got back to you either. It, it took him six months. Oh, he did get back to you. He did get back to me. They, uh, they all got back to me, uh, but you know, they what they send is, dear Mr. Bowler, we are doing this and that and this and that, and it, I just sort of cringed. Uh, because I said, you know, if what you were doing was, I thought was right, I wouldn't have written you and sent this to you in the first place. Hmm. I have kind of a practical question. How have you been able to afford these travels as a, as a retired person? Well, I, uh, I'm, first of all, I'm a frugal person. Uh, I've uh, been married. I have had, uh, two children, four grandchildren, um, uh, but I was divorced quite a while ago, and I bought my own house, and I, uh, as with my house and apartment houses, I paid off uh, mortgages uh, very quickly, uh, not regular payments. I added to every payment I could and put every penny I could back into my own home and building. So I have not had a mortgage in over 40 years or a car payment in over 40 years. I, I am driving here a 1997 Honda Accord that just turned 253,000 miles. And everybody warned me, oh, you know, you ought to get a different car. Well, this car gets 30 uh, miles a gallon on the road, and it's still running very well. And I do note that as we're talking to you on uh, this recording day for the historians, you're not staying at the Ritz Hotel somewhere. You're staying at Motel 6. I generally stay at Motel 6 just about every place I go. And 
you know, they're the lowest national chain. I've never had a bad one. Uh, I probably stayed in more motel sixes than Tom Bodette, the spokesman. <laughs> now, you also, uh, f for people you know, send uh, email accounts of your travels. I guess you'd say a travel blog. Uh, and you've been yeah, kind enough to send some of them. It's not a blog so much. You know, nobody can get it unless they're on my mailing list. Uh, but it's a, a travel log of everything that I do. And I, uh, as you can see from some of the material that I've sent you, uh, every day for me is an education. Every day. How do you decide where to go? Uh, well, like I say, I've been to, to every uh, county in the United States, and I have... Uh, the DeLorme Atlas and Gazetteer for every state, and that has a listing in there of places uh, to see and things to do. You know, I have a pretty broad spectrum of interest. I've been to every one of the major Civil War battlefields, almost all of the Indian Wars battlefields, most of the national parks. Uh, I have a broad interest in art and history and military history. Uh, so... Uh, you know, famous people. I've been to many of the president's houses and libraries. Uh, so uh, if I'm coming here, for example, I would uh, go to Google and put in top 10 things to do in Muskogee, Oklahoma. And this What's on the top 10 in Muskogee? Uh, in the top 10 of Muskogee, the downside is just about everything I wanted to see here was closed. This... Uh, <clears throat> Muskogee is a synonym for the Creek Indian tribe, and they are here in this area, and Oklahoma itself used to be uh, Indian territory. There was a federal Indian Removal Act uh, back in the 1800s that took all of the Indians, and surprisingly, I found even the Mohawks were are out here someplace, I don't know where, and... Uh, were sent to Oklahoma and put on reservations here. Mm. Uh, so one of the things that is here is the Five Civilized Tribes Museum, which I find out after I get here and didn't see it when I uh, selected here, uh, is closed for renovations and inventory during the month of uh, month of January. There's also the Three Rivers Museum, which is closed both days that I were here. Also, Fort Gibson, uh, which is about uh, 30 miles, 20, 30 miles east of here, uh, which was the first Indian fort west of uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And uh, another thing is here that I have not got to see is the USS Batfish, which is a World War II submarine. So <laughs> lacking all of these things that I wanted to see here, I decided it was time to um, regroup, do laundry, get an oil change, and uh, and read up. One of the interesting places that I did visit when I was en route here between Fort Smith was the 1829 log cabin of Sequoia, who was a Cherokee who, for the first time in three thousand years invented a printed language and uh and it's a lot of people say it's an alphabet but it's not it's called a syllabary uh which deals with 86 
uh, phrases that he was able to turn into print. And as you well know, most of the Indian tribes do not do not have even today a written language, but the Cherokees do and did, and this gave them an enormous advantage in education and communication. And I have visited most of the major Cherokee sites in the United States, including New Echota in Georgia, Cherokee, North Carolina, and Tahlequah, Oklahoma, which is about 40 miles east of here. And uh, they are very advanced, and I think the key thing was that the to have the printed language and the education. Yes. Have you ever considered writing a book or articles about your travels, or, or maybe you've done you've done so? Well, uh, what I'm the book is already written, okay, and how it's written is in all of my travel logs for the last twelve years. So what I really have to do sometime when I can't travel is to sit down and edit all of these out. Well, I hope you do. Do you take pictures along the way? I take a lot of photographs along with this. I have a uh, camera that takes up to 2,000 shots on a, on a chip, so this can refresh my memory. I I brought the camera with me, but uh, so far on this trip, I haven't even charged it up or taken one photo. I suppose I ought to get that out, but I'm, you know, so much seeing stuff and writing, uh, writing the travelogues that just haven't got to it. How many people do you have on your list for the travelogues? And can the folks listening to the podcast could they could they be subscribe, if you will, or? or uh, be included? If, if people are interested, I have an email address. I think you have that. You can give that out. I don't have any problem with that. Uh, I would. Uh, don't forget, I've traveled all over the world, so I have friends all over the world in Australia, Japan, Canada, Germany, England. Uh, so there's well over a hundred and some people on my my list that uh, I email to. Mm -hmm. Well, I do have your email address. It's P.M. Bowler S.R. at Hotmail.com. I think most people are familiar with the, the suffix there, the end of it, Hotmail.com. But the address again is P.M. Bowler S.R. I presume indicating that you're P.M. Bowler Sr. So P.M. Bowler S.R. at Hotmail.com. Yeah, P.M. B.O.W.L.E.R.S.R. at Hotmail.com. Okay. Does the trip ever end? Uh, not really. I have a I have a friend in Germany who sent me an email that there's going to be a Van Gogh exhibit in Chicago, and uh, I have been to uh, my first trip out of the United States was in 2004, and I went and I spent 40 some days in France, and. The primary uh, gist of that was to uh, look at the Impressionist art in France, uh, mainly Claude Monet. But then I picked up on Van Gogh or Van Hock, as they say in the Netherlands, and I have been to just about every place that Monet has been, Salvador Dali has been, Picasso has been, uh, and Van Gogh has been, uh, except the sanitarium that he was in at Saint-Rémy near Arles in France. So I 
vaguely thinking about planning a trip to Arles and spend a week there. I've been there, but just to the city of Arles. And, uh, you know, so I'm always planning ahead for interesting things to do. I think I may pursue this Sequoia deal a little bit more. He was, uh, was half white and half Cherokee, and the origins of his father are uh, not really pinned down, so I may mm-hmm. research that. I'd love to do research, okay. and it's just a good excuse to go and, and look at everything and go to different locations. Well, Phil Bowler, we're, we're just out of time. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, best of luck to you uh, on the road. Phil uh, Bowler speaking with us from Muskegee, Oklahoma. Have a good day. Thank you so much, Bob.